0: And welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the television industry i'm dan schmidt your host and with me is the new token white guy in the group black appella that is replacing sean spencer when he's hospitalized my co-host
1: hey everybody it's nico and welcome to across the airwaves on this week's episode dan and i review new episodes of once upon a time castle psych fringe and supernatural as well as give you our favorite comedic moments from breaking in modern family and community
0: And in case you haven't heard by visiting the Across the Airways website or listening to some of our recent podcast episodes, for those of you looking for reviews on Green Lantern and Young Justice, as well as the other content that makes up Cartoon Network's DC Nation, we have our reviews on all of that on its own separate podcast called ATA DC Nation. So, if you want to hear about those shows, go and listen to that podcast. And for all of our other live action shows that we cover, stick here with us on the regular ATA show. So, before we get into talking about the live action series that we cover, I'm going to pass things on to Nico with everyone's favorite section News with Nico.
1: Braveheart TV series in the works A scripted drama series called Wallace is in the works, based on the historic life of Scottish warrior legend William Wallace, famously portrayed by Mel Gibson in the film. Since we all know how the story ends, the series will revolve around Wallace's backstory, his years spent attempting to unify Scotland, his loves and losses, as well as his legendary battles. While this actually sounds like it could be an interesting story, My initial reaction to reading that headline was, really? This is sort of ridiculous. Not only has it been 17 years since the the movie came out. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either when when I figured it out. But this is blatantly playing off the success of things like Game of Thrones and Spartacus. How about do something original instead of rehashing
0: Braveheart? This is like the Goodfellas TV show idea. Yeah, exactly. It's going to tarnish a great movie.
1: Well, I still think it could be done well, but yeah, you're starting off with something that was so well done originally. Why remake it? Why not come up with something totally original? Yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are aliens? With the Christmas Day 2013 release of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, live-action reboot film stole quite a bit off in the horizon. Michael Bay revealed that for the first time, their origin will be significantly altered, eliminating all traces of their transformation by radioactive mutagen and other similar concepts. Instead, this time around, the Turtles will be aliens. Bay said, quote, these turtles are from an alien race and they are going to be tough, edgy, funny, and completely lovable. Wait, teenage alien ninja turtles? Did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just become taint?
0: Well, okay. Now, are they saying that they're aliens? Because in the comics, the ooze was created by aliens.
1: No, he's saying they're an alien race that has come to
0: Earth. Okay. Yeah. Michael Bay... I guess he yeah. didn't have a childhood with Ninja Turtles action figures. or
1: Exactly. Oh, anyway, with this announcement, Jeez. the internet fanboys completely lost their minds. Yeah. Created a whirlwind of backlash from fans upset and feeling like Michael Bay kicked them directly in their childhood. Well, Bay has issued a response to this. And it seems that the director best known for Transformers, Pouty Supermodels, and Explosions is yeah. holding firm on this issue of the revamped origin story. Bay states, quote, fans need to take a breath and chill. They have not read the script. Our team is working closely with one of the original creators of Ninja Turtles to help expand and give a more complex backstory. Relax. We are including everything that made you become fans in the first place. We are just building a richer world. But did Michael Bay just tell us to shut the up? I believe he did. As a hardcore fan of the original oh cartoon series and at least two of the original live-action films, I take offense, Michael Bay. Not the smartest move telling angry fanboys to chill and relax. That always makes us happy.
0: Especially Ninja Turtle fans. Yeah, expect sure. the
1: backlash to continue following Bay's most recent statements.
0: Ooh, you picked them wrong. Battle there, Michael
1: Bay. Nathan Fillion to play Hermes in Percy Jackson's sequel. Nathan has been cast as the Greek deity Hermes in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Sea of Monsters, based on the second book in the Rick Riordan Young Adult book series. All I can say about this is, Aw, Nathan, why? Now I have to watch this crap because you're going to be in it. The entire premise of the movies and the books before that is faulty because it has Percy Jackson, Perseus, being the son of Poseidon, which we all know is inaccurate because Perseus is the son of Zeus and Danae, a human, and it was Poseidon that, at the request of Zeus, calmed the ocean so they did not drown when they were cast in the ocean. Obviously, come on. The later books in the series try to correct this mistake by claiming that Percy's mother named him after the original Perseus and that he is not actually right. Perseus, because his is one of the few happy-ending Greek mythological stories but in reality, it was just that the author, Rick Reardon made a huge mistake in the first book out of ignorance or incompetence and lazily tried to fix it with this story from the mother. Weak sauce all around. And the first movie was kind of lame. Yeah. I had happily decided not to continue this series of films, but now that Nathan is in it, I have to watch this one. I just have to. I got to support my boy Nathan. I do have to say, though, congrats, Nathan Fillion, on ending another film role. About time, in my opinion, you start getting
0: some love from the movie industry. Well, you know, he might be able to save the franchise. Maybe that's why they brought him in.
1: I mean, he's a huge
0: draw for sure, not oh, yeah. a
1: help. I seem to be the only person in the world that doesn't like this series, but <laughs> I didn't care. There are a the lot movie.
0: of fans of the series that didn't like the movie, though. I can tell you that right now.
1: Okay. I also saw that they're switching out some of the supporting characters as well. Pierce Brosnan's character has been recast. Okay. Felicia Day to hack into Supernatural. All oh, right. right. Geek worlds collide in an upcoming episode of Supernatural when my absolute favorite geek girl, Felicia Day, guest stars on the April 27th episode titled The Girl with the Dungeons and Dragons Tattoo. I love Felicia Day, and she is everything I'm looking for in a woman. She's beautiful, sexy, geeky, smart, and successful. Can't wait to see her on one of our shows.
0: Now, which Winchester would you want her to hook up with, Dico? Dean. Dean, (laughs) yeah. Your mind would explode if that (laughs) happened.
1: Dark Shadows trailer debuts, and it's a little funky. Director Tim Burton's update to the popular 1966-1971 to 1971 gothic horror sci-fi genre hybrid soap opera, yeah, try saying that again, yeah. comes to life with his favorite repertory player, Johnny Depp, as the franchise's signature character, in escaped vampire from the 18th century Barnabas Collins. Also, there's Ava Green as an evil witch with huge cleavage. So yeah, I'm intrigued. There's a link on our Facebook page to the trailer.
0: And that's all you have to say about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Ava Cree.
1: New Doctor Who companion has been unveiled. Oh boy. Little known British soap star Jenna Louise Coleman lands the role of the Doctor's newest sidekick. Since we told you earlier that the beautiful and much-loved Karen Gillan will be leaving the show at some point this season during the currently filming Series 7, it comes as no surprise that Moffat would be looking to cast the new companion. News came this week that he had cast Jenna Louise Coleman to play a companion that can keep up with the Doctor. Moffat describes her character saying, It's not often the Doctor meets someone who can talk even faster than he does, but it's about to happen. Jenna is going to lead him his merriest dance yet, and that's all you're getting for now. Who she's playing, how the Doctor meets her, and even where he finds her are all part of the biggest mysteries in Time Lord ever encounters. Even by the Doctor's standards, this isn't your usual boy meets girl. Of course, I'm sad to see Amy Pond and Rory Williams go. They have been two of my all-time favorite characters on Doctor Who. But as Karen said earlier this year, at least they're going out on a high, and I'm excited to see where this new character goes. I can hardly wait for Series 7 to start, but as of yet, no premiere date has been set.
0: Now, is there a picture of the new actress?
1: Yes, and it's available on our Facebook page.
0: Okay, were you satisfied?
1: Yeah, she's cute.
0: Okay, good. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, good stuff. Exciting things coming for you, Doctor Who fans. And with that, we're going to move on to a show that seems to put a twist on, on those fairy tale stories that we were told as kids. With the show, Once Upon a Time, and the episode, Heart of Darkness.
1: While Mary Margaret is arrested for the murder of Catherine... In the fairy tale world, James tries to stop Snow from killing evil Queen Regina.
0: The writers of this show's ears must have been ringing after our last discussion because this episode seemed to take note of our comment that the supporting characters are what's making this show enjoyable at this point. Because we got to see some of our favorites, such as Grumpy and Red Riding Hood, as well as the return of Jiminy Cricket slash Dr. Hopper, a character that we hadn't seen in a while. Again, my favorite scene with the supporting characters was Red transforming into the wolf to tear up the king's bed. who were chasing after Prince Charming. Because after the excellent way they built up Red's character in last week's episode, this was an excellent payoff. But if you thought this scene was cool, I think Ruby transforming in the real world, probably in a future episode, will probably be even more impressive. Because the character is going to find a confidence in herself that may turn the tide in Emma's struggle against Regina. In fact, Ruby may discover her werewolf-like abilities next week as August W. Booth may have to show the sexy waitress her true potential to save a kidnapped Emma from the Mad Hatter. Speaking of August, I love the scene that he had in this episode. It's like every time he's on screen, he delivers this really well-written dialogue that brings us back to when we had story time as kids It had this optimistic Disney-like view of the world, which I think he believes Emma can bring to fruition if pushed in the right direction. Plus, even though they've really only had two scenes together, I really like the relationship that has been established between August and Henry because it allows the writer to fit nicely into Emma's goal of getting closer to Henry that I think is going to evolve into a desire to have a family with Henry and August. At the same time, I'm glad that the writers finally got their butt in gear that had Emma start to realize that something is going on in Storybrooke that may go beyond what she considers to be reality. With the discovery that Regina has a set of keys which can open any door in the town. In my opinion, the benefits of this is one, it might make Emma look less like a capitalist police officer from the 60s Batman show, which Nico accused her of being last week. And two, to think it's going to kick off the romance between August and Emma that's going to make the show light off with audiences like fireworks on the 4th of July, or in this case at Disney World. Right now, I know the show is totally focused on Prince Charming and Snow White, but based on the statements I just made, August is going to bring, dare I say, magic to the show that I think is going to redefine the Disney fairytale romance as we know it. In the same way that Smallville redefined Superman's origins, or the X-Files, or something Joss Whedon did, redefined sci-fi fantasy storytelling. Honestly, Once Upon a Time needs to give us this romance with Emma. Because the biggest problem I had with this episode was the interaction between David and Mary Margaret. They are basically fine when things are going well between them, or in the fairy tale world. But this overly serious drama with Mary Margaret getting angry at David for not believing she's innocent isn't being played very well by these actors. I was going to let this go the first time when they had that fight over David not revealing his affair with Catherine. But now that we've got this overacted melodrama a second time, they're thinking it's time to shift the focus onto another overarching romance. And Emma, I think, makes the best candidate, since her newfound motivation to once again bring the fight to Regina is probably in need of some help. And in the case of David and Mary Margaret, because some of the scenes they had in this episode, I was having flashbacks to Star Wars Episode 3 to that horribly acted scene where Natalie Portman was like, Anakin, you're breaking my heart. I mean, honestly, that's kind of how this is feeling right now. And it's making me cringe. So with me having high hopes that we're going to see a lot more August W. Booth in the future to make this show a little bit better. And since the fairy tale world seems to be catching up with the release of the spell that brought everything into the real world, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico with your thoughts on once upon a time
1: this week's episode paid off on a lot of careful setups from a few slow-paced episodes in a row obviously red was the first clear indicator of this when she told prince charming to get a head start then put in the crazy contacts and took off the cloak and became a crazy monster of crazy which was a great payoff from last week's red the werewolf episode Next, we saw the first moments of Snow White with the iconic red bow humming a few bars of the Snow Whites with a smile and a song song. And then switching it up a little as she starts trying to kill a bluebird and then gets pulled into a dwarf intervention, which was hilarious. And in addition to being hilarious, it actually made perfect sense that giving up her love via drinking Rumpel's Stiltskin's elixir destroyed all the love inside her. That's a poetic consequence that fits with the logic of magic in the world of this show, and it was very well done. Meanwhile, in the real world, it became painfully clear that Mary Margaret was being set up. If you didn't already know it, she's being framed. And while I kept yelling at the screen all the things I mentioned last week about Emma being Mary Margaret's alibi and how this was blatantly a frame job, I tried to calm down long enough to see where things went. And the plot did move forward with a succession of three important developments. First, Mary Margaret took Mr. Gold on as her lawyer. Second, Henry showed Emma his mother's crazy skull key rings, or skull key rings, the ring of a bunch of skull keys. (laughs) And then finally, Mary Margaret found a key and got the heck out of prison. While I was a little distressed that Emma found the hunting knife in a roommate's room. Henry showing her the skull key, that thing I was trying to say earlier. Why don't and we go pointing, with skeleton key? Yeah, but each one has skulls on it, and that's what right. I was trying to say. Okay. So, Ring of Skull Keys. Okay. <laughs> and pointed out that it was his mother Regina that was framing Mary Margaret helped restore Emma's usually unshakable faith in her friend slash probably mother. I'm not sure how I feel about Henry having to be the one to point out that Regina is framing Mary Margaret. Emma's supposedly smart, but I don't think she's ever treated as such, at least not very often in this show. Given her constant battles with regina i feel as if she should have come to that conclusion on her own without the help from henry granted she hasn't witnessed regina be mean to mary margaret herself but isn't it safe to assume at this point that regina just hates everyone yeah however i guess having henry figure it out gave him something to do this week which he was otherwise useless in this episode except maybe that scene with booth the writer I do hope your theory about Emma and Booth, his relationship getting kickstarted soon is correct. I do hope that kicks off yeah. in the next couple of episodes and really starts moving forward. I'm getting sick of David and Mary Margaret, which I said last week about them really kind of just starting to piss me off. I like the snow and charming part, but right. the David and Mary Margaret is getting old. Anyway, let's move on a little bit. The parallels between the fairy tale world and Storybrooke in this episode really hit the mark. Mary Margaret turns to Mr. Gold for help. He's also a lawyer. Just as Snow White turned to Rumpelstiltskin. Snow White walked a dangerous path when she was set on killing the evil queen. Incidentally because of Rumpelstiltskin's potion, but that's neither here or there. And Emma is taking a similar role by asking Mr. Gold to help her sort of get back at Regina for Catherine's murder. Prince Charming saves Snow White and set her back on course, and I'm guessing that Mary Margaret will similarly rescue David in the future. So the worlds are converging, and this seems a good way to mirror the fairy tale world, and I thought it was really well done. And finally, this episode kind of moved a little bit slowly. And some of the dialogue was repetitive between realities, but ultimately I don't mind terribly because I recognize that it is necessary to push all the pawns into place and set the board for events to come. This episode was a payoff, as I said before, for many of the things set up in the past three to five episodes, but I also felt like it might have been the final setup episode of the season. And hopefully this means the remainder of the season will be action-packed
0: like we've been hoping for. The thing that I'm kind of finding tricky, I'm kind of agreeing with you on that the chessboard is set. Mm -hmm. And this episode, more so than the others, felt like, okay, things are set. We can move the story forward now Mm -hmm. because everyone's got a basis of what's going on. But then, like, next week they're bringing in something like the Mad Hatter. They're going to have to explain all of his background, which I don't know if it's the right time to do something like that.
1: No, I think it is time to start moving forward. Right. And like I said, be hopefully action-packed. But that doesn't mean you can't introduce new characters. But when you do, they need to push the overall story arc forward so that it can't just be a standalone episode anymore. I think we've done enough of those for this season. And if we want to bring more characters in second season, then we start introducing some of these side characters at that point. Now, if the Mad Hatter comes in and pushes a major story arc forward, then I'm happy with
0: that. Which I'm I'm hoping that's what's going to happen because I know Emma gets in danger in the next episode. So I'm hoping that forces Booth for whatever, because it seems like his motivation or whatever he's trying to achieve has to do with Emma. So I'm wondering if that's going to push him into interacting with her more or forming a bigger connection between the two of
1: them. Yeah, that's a good call. I think that you're right on the mark there.
0: Because, again, that's where it needs to go. I mean, as you and I both said, the Snow White romance needs to get moving. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, not Snow White, but the David and Mary Margaret. Like, we almost need to be done with that. Do you know what I mean? Almost we need to transfer things to what's going on with August and Emma paralleling what happened with Snow White and Prince Charming. Yes. You know, they quickly need to become the couple that works very soon or it's just going to get annoying. So let's hope we go there. And with that, I'm pretty much ready to move out if you are. I'm ready. Okay, good deal. So let's move on to an episode of Castle that started out kind of mundane, but turned out in the end having the pretty solid mystery and kept my interest. Again, I think the bigger episode is to come next week, but this was a nice comeback for Castle. So let's talk about the Castle episode Dance with Death.
1: When a reality dance competitor is found dead in her dressing room, Castle and Beckett find that the scandalous secret she was keeping may have led to her death.
0: This week's Castle had me really excited when it first started, because I was glad the show was back after a short hiatus. Then around the midway point, I began to get kind of bored, as this episode seemed like it was going through the motions in this straightforward procedure that seemed to use the gimmick of dancing with the stars as a backdrop. However, by now I should know better than to underestimate these writers because as soon as I began to lose interest in the story, it sucked me right back in, as it was revealed this week's murder victim was someone who stole the identity of a rich heiress who was killed in a trade crash. Also, I thought this episode did a very good job of intriguing us in the domestic side plots following the supporting character, such as Martha's humorous spat with a theater critic, that was resolved by poor Castle having to read the critics' novel, and Ryan's experiments about being a married man, which resulted in his wedding ring getting stuck on Esposito's finger. Along with these shenanigans, we also got some classic one-liners from Castle, revealing fun bits of information from his younger, wild years, including a gas card scam that he still doesn't want his mother to know about. At the same time, the use of Alexis was good in this episode, because we got to see her in the setting at home and in the medical examiner lab, where she gave Castle and Beckett a major key in solving this week's mystery, through actual police work and evidence, instead of the usual epiphany that comes out of a conversation she has with Castle during the third act of the episode. Then again, with all this great stuff surrounding the supporting character, the romance and flirtation between Castle and Beckett seemed somewhat ill, minus Beckett revealing that she wanted to be a lawyer before her mother was killed. But that's okay, because next week's episode is going to be all about the romantic tension between the police detective and the mystery writer, as Beckett, during an intense interrogation section, reveals she remembers everything after getting shot by the sniper, including Castle's I Love You. So with the shipper and me very excited for next week's episode, but bracing myself for a good old monkey wrench to be thrown at Castle and Beckett, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, about an episode of Castle that I can best describe as the call before the storm, or should we say bomb?
1: I really enjoyed this episode. I thought the mystery was excellent, with the major twists and turns and constantly pulling the rug out from under our feet at every turn. Although always enjoyable, sometimes the arcs of the cases on this great show are pretty outlandish. This episode was not completely unbelievable, though. Although finding someone who looks pretty similar to you and then paying them to have surgery to look more like you is a little ridiculous. Yeah. However, the fun surprises kept the mystery moving and ended up working well. I was surprised that it was the imposter not having a shared memory that outed the doppelganger. I'd hope that my friends and family would be able to tell me from an imposter... It's not as if they were all suffering from the opposite of Capgras syndrome, where you think your family and friends have been replaced by imposters. Why did it take so long to figure out that she was not Odette? Plastic surgery is not that good. Anyway, what made this episode is the banter between Beckett and Castle, Martha's silliness, and a reasonably good bit between Ryan, played by Seamus Dever, and Esposito, John Huertas, in which all the women they talk to are hitting on Espo and ignoring the newly married Ryan. Esposito says it's Ryan's wedding ring, or actually later he changes it and says that Ryan is too obviously happily married, something it appears Ryan will have to deal with, although I think, hey, that's a good thing. These are all the things that we love about Castle, the strong character relationships that we can all relate to and enjoy. And With a cast this strong, there's bound to be some characters who get the shaft, always getting relegated to B-list arcs. Obviously, the important and main story should go to the four detectives, but Martha and Alexis should not be forgotten about either. These two deserve better stories than they've been getting recently. Putting Alexis in the morgue with Lainey seemed promising, but a 30-second scene here and there doesn't really cut it for me.
0: I say next week on that one. Okay. That's what I'm going to say. I
1: I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. Now, I also have to say, I haven't always been the biggest fan of Alexis's stories, but I have always enjoyed her father-daughter moments with Castle. I also do have a problem with how much she is doing in the internship at the medical examiner's office. For one thing, the things she did in this episode would require her to have an MD and be a resident or fellow working as an assistant medical examiner. So not really believable this week in what she did. It was better for the story, but not realistic. They need to find something that works Alexis back into the story better than this internship because for her to be what she was this week, story-wise, they need to find a role for her that would be believable as a high school graduate in an internship at the medical examiner. She's not going to be doing the kind of stuff that she was supposedly doing this week. So, I don't know. They just need to fix Alexis's story, right?
0: Well, they need to hire an expert within this type of field, with, with medical, within the forensic field, to make sure that they are accurate on the show. They so. probably
1: do have someone that just gets overruled. Because story always overrules...
0: Well, I was going to say, if they don't have anybody, Castle Producers, if you're listening, I have a co-host that could do some job. Just (laughs) throwing it out there.
1: It may not seem like it from my complaining, but I did very much enjoy this episode. It was a very solid episode. I'm just pointing out some of the things that irked me about an otherwise good episode.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, like, my family that was watching it and and myself, like, I don't know any better. You know what I mean? You know because you've actually been in the forensic field. So I I totally understand where that complaint's coming from. Okay. That's warranted, and and I think we all get that you enjoyed the episode, but that was a little issue, and everybody has an issue with every episode. Right. So, good deal. So, obviously, with Castle, great episode. Next week is going to be huge. Yep. From what I'm hearing. So check that out. It's going to be big. We're pumped up for it. And with that, we're going to move on now to talking about the Breaking In episode that I thought was quite funny called The Blindsided.
1: Veronica brings a young teen in when the team tries to locate a computer hacker.
0: My favorite comedic moment from this week's Breaking In would have to be Cash's ideas got how Cam could make a grand, romantic gesture towards Melanie, including projecting her face on the moon like the bat signal, and presenting her with Metal Knee, a big metallic statue of Melanie that looked like almost she could transform into a Team 1000. That's kind of what it reminded me of. And with Cash being such a big sci-fi fan, that makes sense. I also was amused by the scene where Oz brought Cam into his man cave to blast interrogation lights in his face while giving love advice, because we really haven't had a moment like this between, shall I say, Master and Apprentice since the first season. It was nice to know that Oz still has this mentor role in Cam's life, whether he wants it or not. So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your favorite comedic moment from Breaking In.
1: After a step forward last week with the Veronica character, the show took a huge step backwards with regard to Megan Mullally, as she was utterly terrible this week, trying to be the much sexier and better actress Sandra Bullock. That being said, ultimately, this was a much better episode than the first one, and probably, I'd say, the best episode so far. The Cam and Melanie ending, or at least ending for now, was more romantic and touching than I might have expected for this sitcom but was really well done. It also opens the door for the Cam and Molly romance that we saw two episodes ago. But the Oz Batcave slash Man Cave scene was the best scene of the episode because it did feel much more like the first season. Though that scene at the end when they were melting the Terminator, I mean, Metal Knee, was pretty awesome too. So it was a good episode. I just didn't like Megan
0: Mullally. She's better when she's not acting like the boss. Yes, And this one, she really wasn't acting like the boss. This was more Oz acting like the boss.
1: Yeah, I just don't like her when she's off the wall either. And her trying to be funny, hip to the black community. Those scenes were just, oh, it made my skin crawl. I know it's supposed to, but it, it, it did it the wrong way.
0: I think they're experimenting with the character, and I think hopefully that they'll realize toning her down works better. Yes, because in the scenes where they've toned her down, it works pretty well. Yeah, I agree. You know, let let Christian Slater and those guys roll with the punches and the fun, and just kind of have her around. You know, agree. I just think that I just think it'll just work better because they have such good chemistry. Not worth trying to mess with something new. So let's move on to a show that, when it comes to comedic writing, has pretty much mastered things. And I don't think there's really anything they need to develop when it comes to the comedy, because this season, every episode's cracked me up. So let's talk about the psych episode. Let's do wop it again. you out in the end.
1: After someone tries to murder the founder of a youth charity, Two of Gus's former Blackapella members decide to help him and Sean with the investigation.
0: When it comes to this week's episode of Psych, if you say the word iPad, I'm going to smile. Because a hospitalized Sean joining in on the mystery through the magic of FaceTime and an actual iPad that Gus carried around with him with this cool little handle on it was comedic gold. Now, I don't know if the writers with this route with the iPad because James Roday did actually have his appendix removed that the doctor told him to take it easy while filming, or if they were just making time for all of the guest stars. But all the gags from iPad Sean being braver than the regular Sean, to Sean dodging bullets when he was nowhere near all the action, got myself and the audience that I was watching this episode cracking up laughing. Heck, even Woody joined in on the joke because he put the iPad underneath the blanket on the examination table The gross out Shawn with the side of a charred broil gangbanger. However... The credit for all the comedy in this episode can't just go to Sean on the iPad, as Lassie also delivered his fair share of great laughs when he visited Marlowe at the woman's prison to get some information on this week's case. As I've said before on this show, the writers of Psych have publicly announced that Lassie is one of their favorite characters to write for, and it shows in every single one of his appearances. But when Carlton begins flirting around with Marlowe like he did in this episode, his dialogue is taken to a whole new comedic level. And I certainly can't get enough of it, especially when it involved Marlowe having to punch Lassiter in the face to get information on a gangbanger and see the sheer awkwardness of Christy Swanson's hair in dreadlocks. I also thought it was funny how Lassie kept referring to the members of Blackapella as various African-American musicians, such as Barry White or the musical group that we've always wanted to appear on Chuck, Earth, Wind & Fire. Speaking of Blackapella, or Quarter Black, depending on your preference, we did get the original group as a well-delivered Iron Man 2 Don Cheadle joke revealed Keenan Thompson had been replaced by Mikai Pfeiffer due to a scheduling issue which was fine to me because Mackay Pfeiffer is a better actor. At the same time, it was fun to see an actor who played a character on a serious show like ER get to goof around a bit as an old friend of Gus, who seemed to have some violent tendencies, and his chemistry with Jael White, better known as Family Matters Steve Urkel, was enjoyable to watch, especially when Lassie had them both in the interrogation room. Moving on, I know that I praised Sean being on the iPad for setting up some great jokes, but it also did a nice job of raising the stakes for the third act of this episode, Guess Sean's corresponding with Gus led to this week's criminal discovering that the police were to him. But from this modern technology mishap that put our favorite psychic detective at gunpoint, we got a great bro moment between Sean and Gus because their lifelong friendship allowing us to pick up on Sean being in danger through their iPad communications without him having to say something directly. Although Sean was the one who ended up punching out the bad guy in the end, as Sean wasn't connected to the morphing drip that the villain set to kill him because Sean's dad only paid for 24 hours of medication in a move that just screamed classic Henry Spencer. So with Psych putting another episode in the win column for their 13th consecutive week in a row, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this episode.
1: Dan, the iPad gag was a great part of this episode and really made Sean being laid up in the hospital bearable. I think this technique was used to great effect to allow all the guest stars to get enough screen time and have things to do to make their appearances worth the effort. Let me say, Cheech, Urkel, buffy and for lack of an identifiable character mckay was excellent this episode great fun i loved it when swanson's marlo decked lassie in the face to get in good with the gang she needed information from though i found the guard who kept yelling no touching annoying and not really funny which is what they were going for so it was kind yeah. of a miss how great would it be if Swanson became a series regular for season seven? Though I will kill you all if you start calling them Carlo, yes, Carlton and Marlo, Carlo. Can we all Please just no agree? We started that. Uh, yeah, I saw it. Oh man! <laughs> can we all just agree to stop this shipper tradition of mashing the names together to make a stupid name for the couple? Thank you. Still, the worst one I've ever heard to date is Casket for Castle and Beckett, but we don't have to get into that right now. The songs from this episode were amazing. Also, they were an understated high point of the hour. The opening sequence featured the real voices of James Rode, Dooley Hill, Jaleel, and Makai. And it was actually pretty good. They were actually pretty good. And I loved the opening theme song done cappella this week. That was cool too. The same goes for the much missed musical Psych Out. That was good at the end. Yes. They really should do these more often as opposed to the bloopers. Though, I really can't complain about the bloopers. Yes. Both are more than welcome. Remember, I was disappointed last week not having a Dooley Hill and Wayne Brady duet I'm glad they did not disappoint this week with plenty of singing, both in the psych out and in the episode, because you can't bring all those people together and not have some singing. Come on.
0: Right, right. Exactly. Great episode. uh, Quarter black. Oh, yeah.
1: Great episode. And Dan, you are correct. Another great episode to keep the streak going.
0: This show just it's it cracks me up every week. It really does. I mean, it just it's been doing it for six seasons. I know it's just it's it's so great the jokes never get old it's so well timed I can't believe more people aren't watching this show to be honest I mean I guess because it's on cable I mean it's right up there with some of the, the funny stuff we get on Community or Big Bang or Chuck or any of those things oh yeah I mean it, it really is it's great stuff and they every week you know never cease to amaze me with what they do so I'm just really excited to see what fun stuff Sykes gonna throw at us next so are you ready to move on to community? I am indeed. All right. So let's talk about another episode of community that I thought was a lot of fun and hopefully had great numbers like it did last week. Again, I enjoy this show. I hope it keeps going. I'm rooting for it. We'll see what happens. I know the have kind of been up and down, but this was the great episode and had a really great setup possibly for the future. So let's talk about the community episode, Contemporary Impressionists.
1: Jeff becomes even more narcissistic than usual, while Abed develops an obsession for celebrity impersonators.
0: My community chuckle for this week is everything that had to do with celebrity impersonators, from Abed owing a debt to a celebrity impersonator, a French Stewart who was actually French Stewart, to Shirley impersonating Oprah. and Jeff's impersonation of Ryan Seacrest, causing his ego to Hulk out, with the pressing piano music from the Incredible Hulk TV series thrown into the mix for good measure. Was it just me, or did this episode of Community end with a cliffhanger of Abed potentially going to the dark side? So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your community chuckle.
1: Yeah, my community chuckle has to be Jeff's swagger having a new swagger. This extreme version of Jeff was fun to watch, but it was more fun to watch others react to him. Dean Pelton's falling on the floor and having a near seizure (laughs) when he saw Jeff's aviators was great. Joel McHale's commitment to the Hulk bit was what made the whole ego arc work and made the episode a huge success. And for once, Community did something we don't expect from it. No, not an off-the-wall comedy gag or parody. We expect that. We got a lot of character development from Britta with her genuine care for Jeff and not just trying to be right, and the most development from Troy who had to act grown up contemporary impressionists was a funny episode that would have succeeded with the celebrity impressions alone but throw in this personal growth and changing character relationships you get an episode far better than the sum of its parts and just a great episode now you said you hope the ratings went up unfortunately they went down but they still carried the night for NBC and had the best ratings of the night for the network so it is, it did still did better than any other show could have on the, the number four network at that slot. So not great. It dropped six tenths of a percent rating and dropped about a million viewers. So it sounds terrible. But if you look at it in the great grand scheme of things, it is actually a, still a win for Community because it was better than anything else on that night on NBC.
0: Unfortunately, there's going to be the Juggernaut on Thursday nights is coming back this week. So if they can maintain somewhat of these numbers with Big Bang coming back, then we might be safe with the show, oh, at least for the time being. Yeah. But again, that might be a big factor with Community's success somewhat right now because that Big Bang's not going on. So if they can hold their own somewhat, they'll be okay. True. Yeah. Let's hope so. Because I want to see how that character development plays out. You, you are right. That's really what made this a great episode. So we'll see what happens. So with that, I think it's time to move on to an episode of the show that also seemed to have some big character development and actually settled a big debate that we've had this entire season here on ATA. So let's talk about the Fridge episode, a short story about love. Love <laughs>
1: While Peter and Olivia deal with the emotional consequences of the Observer's revelations to Peter about his future, the Fringe team investigates the case of a killer who seems intent on murdering
0: love. This week's Fringe was one of those TV show episodes that, when watching it, made me keep wanting to get through the one-shot story about a killer who was murdering couples in love, and back to the overarching story revolving around September's revelations to Peter about his future. And with me saying that, don't think that this episode's individual storyline was crappy or poorly written. Because, as always with Fringe, this week's villain was really well-developed. And his motivation to murder love was played off as quite creepy. Especially in the scene where he was walking around the park offering to take pictures of unsuspecting couples. It was very one-hour photo-like, if you've seen that movie, and quite creepy. However, based on how the last episode set us on hiatus, with us finally getting answers about the observers, only for Peter to turn down Olivia's romantic advances, I could just not sit through what was a pretty decent serial killer story, because it felt like what I've been doing over the past few weeks, which is desperately waiting for new episodes of Fridge to see what was going to happen next with the characters that I love. Plus, it didn't help that this episode started out with Dr. Bishop sharing two emotionally charged scenes with Olivia and Peter individually which seemed to give a big hint Walter's memories from seasons 1 through 3 are also coming back to him, as well as what's going on with Olivia. Also adding to my impatience was us getting more revelations about the observers, like Peter going to September's apartment. Because whenever Fringe goes this route, it starts sending me down this endless rabbit hole, where I become addicted to finding answers about the destiny for this show's universes. Then again, by the end of this episode, Guy realized the killer intent on murdering love got a very strong importance in the grand scheme of things. because he was designed to help Olivia to understand why she was in love with Peter. Even though that meant sacrificing the memories of the woman she was without him. I mean, this whole season, we've seen why Peter wanted this season for Olivia to be his Olivia. But we haven't really seen why Olivia wants Peter to be the man she falls in love with. And I thought having Olivia contend with this week's serial killer did a good job of giving us that explanation, even though his story made me impatient to the beginning. At the same time, if it wasn't for the killer forcing Olivia to reveal her perspective on being in love with Peter, I don't think that the ending of this episode would have been as effective or satisfying. And what was that ending, do you ask? Well, it turns out that Peter's visit to September's apartment results in him bringing September back into our universe, after the other observers locked him out. Get a return for his help, he reveals to Peter that there is no reality for him to go back to, because he is still in the reality from Fringe Seasons 1 through 3. Now, this course of action leads to the great final scene of this episode, where Peter and Olivia get back together. Yay! So if you were one of the Fringe fans that were in the camp of Peter still being in the same reality, kudos to you on being correct. And if you were in the camp that Peter got a reality to get back to, nice job on coming up with a crackpot theory that really could have worked on this show. Although regardless of where you stood with this whole reality business, I think we can all be satisfied with the explanation of how Peter returned to existence being love. On that note, I can go through and explain in tandem how each of the characters on this show have shown a love for Peter in one way or another. But I'm going to be kind of cliche by saying that love just can't be explained. In other words, for now, let's just be happy that Olivia and Peter are back together. I can worry about things like David Robert Jones or the possibility of this show being canceled at the end of the season later. As I pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this romantic episode of Fringe. Dan,
1: I too was more interested in getting back to the overall story arc this week rather than focus on the story of the week and the one-off villain of this week's episode. This was probably because I saw an interview with Joshua Jackson this last week that said that a major question would be answered this week and that would progress this overall story arc forward. And that major answer was that essentially my original theory about it being the original timeline with all the changes being due to Peter being erased from history was the actual thing and not my mom's theory, which I later adopted and then abandoned that we were seeing a third and fourth reality. So we finally figured out at the end of this episode that we originally were correct, and then were incorrect, and then again correct, and yes, it is what we thought it was, although we had all our bases covered.
0: But wasn't it fun going on that wild goose chase? Oh,
1: it was, it was great. And, and they did such a good job that at different times, we were wholly invested in both theories.
0: Yeah. It, I just thought it was a lot of fun. That writers did a good job letting us have fun with this debate.
1: Exactly. We've said it many times. That's why this show is one of our favorites. Yeah. We love this show for those debates and those discussions that we have. I really liked the idea that Olivia was willing to sacrifice the memories from her life without Peter to be the woman and have the memories of who she is in love with and with Peter. That was a strong move to show that Fringe is very much a love story wrapped up in a sci-fi epic. If there is a weakness in this episode, it was definitely the mystery of this week. It was far from the strongest material the series has ever created. The series creates a lot of good stuff, and this episode would have probably been better if the side story were cut out. And more attention was just paid to the other storylines, like the stories that follow our main cast and carried this episode basically to the best parts this week. Once we get into Walter's investigation of what happened with September, things got back on track. Walter's spy teddy bear is an interesting (laughs) little plot device that sets things off. Although the device that slowed video down seems to be a little too much of a stretch into pseudoscience, but still it was a necessary stretch to move the plot forward, so I ultimately forgave it. I loved the little bit with Walter watching Scooby-Doo in the background. Yes. That was great. We all had a good laugh at that. Walter actually was quite busy this week, if you looked at it. Mysteries abound in this episode, and they all revolved around Walter in some way. He was investigating the impromptu eye procedure the Observer did on Peter's eye, helping Olivia try to figure out what's going on in her head, and the investigation of the creepy bad-skinned guy's murders all happened at once. And John Noble is, as always, a joy to watch, and delivered a few great jokes, including an off-color beaver joke that made me laugh out loud. (laughs)
0: <laughs> the beaver choke, and you know he also had some very very heartwarming scenes.
1: Oh, absolutely! Especially
0: that one he had with Peter, where he told him that he was a better man than him. That was and, be- awesome. and
1: even before that, when he called Peter to tell him to come to the lab, and Peter told him he was leaving, and there was a visible change that he was disappointed that Peter had told him. Yeah, you know, and that was much more the original Walter than this new Walter. Right, and that was that was a lot of fun to see. Yep, he's back. Yeah, finally. This story does get a little sappy with all the talk about the power of love, but you can't help but enjoy the final shot of this episode, with Peter and Olivia running into each other's arms, their love rekindled. If this had been the series finale, I would have been fairly satisfied with it. But this isn't the end quite yet, and we've still got a lot more story to see and wrap up. The, greatest, su- the, yeah, the yeah. greatest success of this episode is that it nicely wraps up all the debates about the is-he-or-is-it-he drama that marked this season, and sets up the show to move on to the bigger task of crafting what could be the end of everything Fringe. Now, I can't wait and love that this show will be going straight through these final seven episodes to the season, and most likely series finale, without a break.
0: Well, if it's going to the end, they set it up nicely. Okay? That's all I have to say very much so. Yeah, that I mean that's that's the goal with this. I think these writers understand okay, if we're done, we're going to satisfy these people. That's the best you can ask for with this whole matter. Exactly. And I hope that by the time it's over, get if this is the end, people are going to appreciate it because it is a really good story. And and I thought it capitalized very nicely here. Again, the side plot maybe didn't work, but I think there were two important things to that. One was the scene where they were hiding out in the woman's house that they thought he was going to go after. Yes. That that was very very good, and okay, what she said to Olivia in that scene was very important. Yes, and her encounter, Olivia's encounter at the very end with the murderer, why he explained what why he was doing what he was doing. I thought that was big for her to come to that decision.
1: Oh, absolutely. Those Those parts were what made right. this otherwise forgettable feature of the week or murder of
0: the week worth it. I still think we could have gotten that information in other ways. But ultimately, the ending point was where I wanted to be. And I think we just need to go with being satisfied with that. Absolutely. All right. So, I again, I think this was a great episode. Excited. The shippers should be happy now. Let's see what comes next. Yeah. on the big epic debate that they'll probably start next week so get ready ata listeners at least if this show's going out there's going to be one more big debate nico and i will have i guarantee you that so again let's move on to the other show that aired on friday night at the same time that probably equally had as good of an episode and actually to a certain extent in some ways ended on a happy note for its two lead characters very much in the same way french ended so let's talk about the supernatural episode the born again identity
1: When Lucifer pays Sam another visit, he drives him to the brink, forcing Sam to enter a mental hospital. Fearing for his brother's life, Dean takes matters into his own hands, calling upon every hunter he knows. He receives the name of a healer from one hunter, only to find a familiar face waiting for him.
0: This week's episode of Supernatural showed us that even if they're killed off or possessed by leviathans, you can't keep a good supporting character down. Because Dean's desperate search to save Sam from Lucifer was met by the oldest Winchester brother receiving a phone number by what I believe to be the ghost of Bobby. Got through this help from the great beyond, Dean found the healer Emmanuel, who shockingly was cast with his memories missing. Now, with this reunion between two friends that had an epic falling out at the end of last season, the question I was asking myself during the commercial break went around the lines of, How the heck is Cass still alive? Well, the answer is simple. It was God. But was it for the purpose of giving Cass a second chance or to help out Dean? Because with the depression he's been going through this season, he was kind of in need of a miracle. Again, regardless of what God's motivation was for allowing Cass to survive being possessed by leviathans, they really enjoyed the scenes that we got in this episode where Dean helping Cass restore his memories they get his angel mojo back helped resolve a lot of their issues in a way that was much more interesting than hashing things out in an argument. Plus, as a guy who was always rooting for Dean Winchester, it brought a huge smile to my face when we saw he kept Cass's trench coat. Because Dean holding out hope that his friend would someday return symbolized that despite the depression he's gone through this season, there's always been a part of Dean that hasn't stopped fighting, thus making him the true hero of this story in my book. In fact, there was a part of me that sort of wanted the writers to drag out Dean renewing his friendship with Cass by reminding him of his angelic roots into a two or three episode story arc, since it was nice to actually see something go in a positive direction for Dean. After so much crap has been dumped on him, and I didn't want to leave this happy place. But basically, I knew something had to give from Dean and Cass's friendship, now being back on the up and up. Cass was responsible for the Leviathans being unleashed upon the world, and the millions of deaths that came with it, meaning that there had to be some retribution for his actions. Also, as everyone who watches this show knows, it's all about the brothers, Sam and Dean, meaning that in this episode, the Lucifer being in Sam's head plotline could reach the point of needing resolution, because it would have begun to stand in the way of character development between the two Winchesters. The good news about this is, moving away from Dean and Cass, renewing their friendship, is what allowed things to keep moving in a positive direction, not just for Dean, but for both Winchester brothers. As Cass removes Lucifer from Sam's head completely, thus finally putting an end to a six-year cycle of sacrifice between both Sam and Dean. However, this came at a price, because removing Lucifer from Sam required Cass to imprison the devil inside of himself. But getting locked up in a menstrual institution or hospital is not the last we are going to see if Cass. Because I don't think Meg's role in this episode was to help Dean. It was to position herself in a place where she could set Lucifer, who we know she is loyal to, free. Meaning that after taking down Dick Roman, the 8th and what I think final season of Supernatural will be about dusting off the old Impala and getting the band back together, as it Bobby had Cass, to defeat the devil himself once and for all. So with that, Nico, I'm going to pass things out to you with your thoughts on this episode of Supernatural that felt like a huge weight was being lifted off my shoulders.
1: Dan, as usual with Supernatural, I think I have to disagree. I was not a fan of this episode. It was not terrible. It was not a return to season six, but it was not a good episode either. I hate Meg. Have not liked her ever especially not Rachel Miner's portrayal, so her return this episode was just another aspect that did not work for me this week. I also felt that the return of Castiel was a major letdown, and was not as well done as it seems everyone else, Dan you probably too, seem to be saying. Maybe I'm the only one that did not enjoy this reunion, but I didn't. Also, a major problem with this episode was how quickly the ending was wrapped up. Great care was taken to show Sam's degenerating condition, Dean's search for help, and Dean and Castiel's journey back to the hospital. But for the resolution, we got a brief moment of Castiel remembering how to fight demons, and another short scene of him taking on Sam's problem himself. But once that was done, we cut to commercial and come back to Dean and Sam leaving, with Castiel locked up in the facility all alone. Don't get me wrong, the fact that Castiel redeemed himself for what he had done to Sam was much appreciated, and the way this story should have gone. But after so much build-up, and how important of a character Castiel was to the show, we deserve to see more of the denouement, like maybe Dean and Sam reuniting? That would have been a good scene. Or Sam realizing what Castiel did for him? Another possible scene or the brothers making the decision to leave him there that would have been a good debate to put on the screen you know these were all things that just got breezed over in that last couple minutes now i can't put my foot on the one thing that really made this episode not good it was sort of a sum of all the parts that made me really just not get into it i also kind of wish that they had done this storyline with sam earlier in the season I think it would have made the threat to his mental state more believable if he hadn't been able to cope so well and keep it all at bay solely by willpower for so long. But when they did finally follow through on the danger Lucifer was to Sam's mind, it was well done. That was one of the things they really did well in this episode. And Jared Padalecki was great portraying Sam's brokenness. He was great in this episode. His confusion and loss of hope was almost heartbreaking. And Sam's, or Padalecki's, long hair helped the storyline as Sam became more and more disheveled, his hair got more and more crazy, which was, was really well done. And what can I say about Mark Pellegrino that we haven't said before? The threat level was raised by his presence, obviously, and his relentlessness and gleeful way of breaking down Sam was so perfect. I love the way he ruined what would have been a characteristic supernatural angst-filled moment. I stole that line right yes. there from, from IGN. Between Dean and Sam with an, Aw, oh, you guys are having a moment. You know, there were a ton of other little snippets of how he kept Sam from getting any rest that were so good. Specifically, I liked the wake up little Susie moment and him reading from the DSM-4, which was the the book on psychiatric care, and him saying he possibly had a narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, I think the devil has one of those. (laughs) These parts of the episode were so well done by a great guest star that it almost brought me around on this episode. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough to tip the scale. Also, the subplot with Merit, the girl plagued by the ghost of her brother, could have felt tacked on if it hadn't been handled so well. It really was very well done. And as is Sam's normal nature, even when he's being tormented by the devil, he's still aware of a person in need and lends his help. Plus the fact that there was at least one other person in the psychiatric facility that was there because of a supernatural element was really good plot device and a great way to reinforce Sam's own situation. I thought that was very well done. So basically what I'm saying is the Meg, Castiel, and Dean storylines this week did not work for me. But the Lucifer, Sam, and Marin ones did. That math ultimately adds up to be a wash. And as good a way as any for me explaining my feelings about this episode of Supernatural, why I didn't like it, and why I didn't say it was terrible.
0: My thing with the episode here, this is the deal. Yes, it probably wasn't the greatest episode. I do agree that the devil stuff was really great. But I think I'm the most happy about that there's no wacky crap going on with 17 anymore. You know, it's done. That's why I said it's a huge weight lifted off my shoulder. Yes, you're you know, absolutely let's, right. Let's get back to what we were doing season one, you know, hunting things and just kicking butt and doing that kind of thing. And I feel like we're at a point now that everything that happened in this episode got us back to that point now where we can go just busting Leviathan heads. And that's what I'm excited about. That's what I was glad about with this. Now, again, I think this isn't the last we're going to see of Cass. Mm-hmm. I think this is a stepping stone to get those two characters at least out of the way for the time being so we can address going after Leviathans and, you know, what's going on with Bobby. Okay. Which is a character, you know, we want back. We yes, love very Bobby. much so. So I'm like, okay, I can accept this. I think Mark Pellegrino will be back as Lucifer, as a big villain. I think that would be eighth a great season.
1: eighth season. Yes, absolutely. Because yes. it
0: goes back over things from previous seasons.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: And that's what you got to do for a final season.
1: Now, do you agree with me that the ending was way too rushed? Or do you think I'm making There needed making to be a
0: scene up. between Sam and Dean. Okay. Where they realize, whoa, you know, hey, look, Cass sacrificed himself, but things are pretty good for us right now. Mm-hmm. I, hmm I personally, Nico, and this is kind of maybe me being a fanboy, but I kind of hope Felicia Day is a love interest for one of the characters. I, I, I actually
1: like that too, but I don't think hers is a recurring.
0: I know. That's that's the unfortunate well, thing. Of course, they could be holding that information back. Yeah.
1: So we don't, you know. Because
0: I know everyone has such a field day about Sam and Dean having a love interest. But this fan base for this show probably likes her. I'm in love with her. I, I guarantee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guarantee. I think if they would accept anybody, they would accept her. Plus, Dean is kind of a closet geek. Yes. Like, I could see them connecting on the anime thing. Yeah,
1: Dean is definitely a closet geek. Sam's nerd is, he He flies the nerd flag proudly. But Dean keeps the geek flag in the back pocket
0: and and i think it would be fun to have him have a love interest that might make him reveal a little bit more of that geek side of him i agree yeah i just think it would be fun so that's where i'm at um kill meg off please yeah i once they changed actresses i was like forget this i don't like the actress they they have as her now yeah i thought the first one worked i agree okay that's my personal preference i i like the first actress that they had as ruby better too oh yeah definitely no offense, I know it's Jared Paladecki's wife, but the first, Ruby, and again, I think for me, it was just that was the first person to play her, so I was right. most attached to that character. Plus, I think she would have played the going evil part really well. And again, that wasn't the writer's fault, that was a writer's strike issue. I know they just couldn't afford to keep her on the show, so yep. I don't blame them. And with that, I'm going to end this section of Supernatural, congratulating Jared Paladecki on the birth of his first child. That's pretty awesome. That happened this week. So with that, are you ready to move on to the closing, Nico? Indeed. All right, let's move on to the closing, and Nico, can you take it away with what we've got going on at next... Next week's episode, it's kind of, I think the title should be called Overload. Yeah. We have all going
1: on. On next week's episode, we have a jam-packed schedule set to review new episodes of Once Upon a Time, Castle, Psych, Person of Interest, Fringe, and Supernatural, as well as our favorite comedic moments from Breaking In, Modern Family, The Big Fang Theory, and Community. That is almost every (laughs) single show we've ever covered. That's the full load, so we're going to have a full load next week. And also, if you're looking for our reviews on Green Lantern and the The animated series or young justice be sure to check out our new podcast DC Nation podcast hosted by Dan and Michael also available on our website and iTunes
0: and also if you want more podcasting fun you can check out our Smallville Retro Reviews podcast hosted by Michael J. Petty and his partner in crime Woo Kim and they cover episodes from Smallville past and soon we'll be covering the Smallville season 11 comic book coming out written by our new friend of the podcast Brian Q. Miller who did an awesome review with us very insightful very enjoyable so if you haven't checked that out yet check out that podcast on our website it's really great and i just want to take the time to thank brian for joining us we really appreciate him coming in with us we kind of contacted him as a shot in the dark got back to us was really nice gave us some great advice on what michael and i are trying to do with our own careers it was just a great experience so we want to thank brian for that yeah, we want to thank all of you listeners for the support that you've given in this episode. And I just want to thank everyone who jumped on that, that was a part of it. And I want to thank Craig Bird at KryptonSite for advertising what we had going on on Twitter. Thanks to his posting and talking about what we were doing on his website, KSITE TV. That got us a lot of hits. So, Craig, if you're listening, thank you for doing that. We really appreciate it. And again, thank you, Brian, and all of you listeners for giving us so much support. Also, if you'd like, you can listen to our Road to the Avengers podcast miniseries, where Michael and I are going to be inviting you with audio commentary while we watch and order all of the films connected to the highly anticipated Avengers movie coming out on May 4th. The next commentary we have to release is from Iron Man 2. Also, if you'd like, you can visit our website to contact us with your crackpot theories about any of the shows or cartoons that we cover. So you can contact us by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. You can also check out our Facebook page. You can click the like button on our website to access all of Nico's news that he posts during the week. And also you can communicate with us by connecting to our Twitter, which is Across Airways. There's no the in there, just Across Airways. You can also do the same by accessing our Google Plus page. The link's on our website. Also, if you'd like, since we have a much larger network of listeners now, please feel free to leave us a voicemail with any of your crackpot theories about the shows we cover. Now, what number can people call to do that, Nico?
1: 773-809-3363.
0: Also, if you would like, you can access our YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews and promos for what's going on at Across the Airways, as well as movie trailers or previews for upcoming movies and favorite episodes of our TV show. That also featured on our YouTube channel our video podcasts, of nico's own show called news with nico featuring all sorts of video clips and news and blue screen effects to talk about all the news and stuff nico finds out during the week so check out that show it's really well done and he just released a new episode today also you can download our android app you can access that by clicking the link on the right hand side of our page with that you can contact us and listen to Across the airways episodes all through your cellular phone so once again, for Smallville Retro Reviews host Michael J. Petty, and Woo Kim, I'm Dan And I'm Nico Resteck. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airways. Have a great week, everybody, and enjoy all the new TV that's coming out. All you need is love. All you need is love.